Well, good morning, Gospel Hope, and welcome back. Uh, as you know, last week we celebrated Resurrection Sunday, and so uh, today we are wa walking into a brand new series entitled Knowing God. Now, during the course of this series, over the next several weeks, we will be exploring a body of doctrine commonly known as theology proper. Now, before you reach for your laptops or slam them closed or start searching for another church's live feed, trust me, it won't be crusty, heavy, or boring. Uh, we have a commitment to you as Gospel Hope Church to make sure that theology proper actually is theology practical. Uh, over here on, the, on my right, probably your left, you may see a suitcase. One of the things I enjoy about these suitcases is that on the bottom, they've got these four swiveling wheels or casters and this sturdy handle on the back. What that does is make sure that even when this suitcase is at maximum capacity, it can be handled and maneuvered even by a five-year-old because of those wheels and because of that special handle. Well, your pastoral team is equally committed to you to making sure that theology proper actually becomes theology practical. We're gonna put some wheels and handles on this topic so that regardless of how dense and how deep it may sound on the surface, we are actually gonna make it handleable as well as make it something that you can really use in this particular season of the life of the church. So uh, if you would, join me really quickly in a word of prayer as we get ready to open God's Word and explore this new series entitled Knowing God. Father, in the name of Jesus, we're thankful to you for your great work in the earth. We thank you specifically, Lord God, for your Word and how you preserved it for us, made it available to us, and then, of course, giving us your Holy Spirit to illuminate it for us so that our hearts may grab fully a hold of, Lord God, doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, and be thoroughly and completely furnished for the great work that you have for your believers in this earth. So meet with us in the scriptures. Edify us, O God. Build us up. Glorify yourselves, Lord God, and beautify, Lord God, your word. Help our hearts to have deeper faith in what it is that you've said for us throughout time and history. This we pray in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me in them to the book of Romans. We're going to take a text from the book of Romans, specifically in chapter 1, verses 16 through 25. It is there that we'll use as our launch pad to answer a fundamental question. Is God truly knowable? You see, before we go through and begin exploring all of his attributes and what they mean and how we can apply them, we need to answer the question, is God really knowable? Now, if God is knowable, I believe, based on the testimony of Scripture, that he has to make the first move. That's because we are fallen. We are broken. Our sensitivities are broken. Our proclivities are marred by sin. Our, our vision is blinded. And there is a great distance and difference between us and God that requires that he, as the larger party in this relationship, make the first move to ensure that we know him effectively. I mean, after all, if you wanted someone to know you clearly, carefully, effectively, and accurately, would you not make the first move in introducing yourself properly? Well, that's exactly what God has done, and we'll see that disclosed through the testimony of Scripture. So now, if God has indeed made himself knowable, is there anything in Scripture that tells us that, or is this just a great assumption? Well, I look at the testimony of Jesus in John chapter 17, verse 3, when he's talking to the Father, and he says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I also take into consideration the 
testimony of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And you can turn there as well in verse 9 when he says these words, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I thought as a child, and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, when is the then? When that which is perfect comes. We face to face. And now I know in part, but then when that which is perfect comes, we're face to face. We shall know, we shall know as fully as we have been known. Wow, what a staggering proposition that we will have the ability to know as fully as we are known. This is the testimony of Scripture. God wants to be known, even throughout the Old Testament. And one book in particular comes to mind in the book of Ezekiel. 33 times the Lord says, and they shall know. God is interested in being known. Well, what exactly has he done to make himself knowable if this is true? And that's where our exploration through uh, beginning with and through this passage in Romans is going to take us to answer that question. Now, if you would read with me, it says, beginning with verse 16 in Romans chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that's in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed or disclosed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God took the initiative, right, and showed it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their flesh to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creator or the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. There are four clues as to how God has actually made the first move in making himself knowable to us. Uh, the first clue is simply this. It is going to, I'm going to refer to these four things as my four primary points. And here's the first one. There in verse 16, it says, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because in it, God reveals something about himself. So the first thing we're going to look at is the expositional witness of Scripture. God reveals himself expositorily. When the gospel is properly read, properly understood, and properly preached, something about God is then known. The second witness is that of creation. Uh, Apostle Paul testifies here that the wrath of God is revealed against the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth because things that can be known about him, namely his divine uh, nature and eternal power, can be known or understood through the things that he has actually made. So there's not only an expositional witness, but there's also the external witness of the created world around us. There's a third witness. In the scriptures, it also says that these people who suppressed the truth 
exchanged it for a lie, and rather than worshiping the creator, they worship the creature and things like it. Which means that humanity has this innate sense that worship is somehow necessary and appropriate. And that's the third uh, witness, which is the internal witness that we all know that we are wired for worship. And we're going to disclose and unpack that later. There's a fourth witness that's not nearly as explicit, but is clearly included here in the scriptures. And that is the eternal witness of the Holy Spirit. And so those are the four witnesses or the four ways in which God has made himself knowable. And we're going to explore those together throughout the course of this message. So again, uh, buckle up um, as we get ready to roll through these four ways in which God has made himself knowable. When we talk about this expositional witness and the gospel in particular, What's so powerful and special about the gospel that in it God is disclosing or revealing himself? I want you to take note of a certain pattern from the book of Acts when each one of the preachers would preach the gospel to their respective target audiences. They had a, a very special habit. They would start from some point at the beginning of Jewish history, and they would walk forward showing moment after moment all the acts of righteousness of God throughout their own personal history. And then they would show where the righteousness of God intersected with the unrighteousness of mankind and where the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of man intersected. That pinch point represented the need to repent or the need for redemption. And so when the gospel is properly preached, it's like God using a PowerPoint presentation to go slide after slide after human history or even my own personal history to say, here is what God has been doing moment after moment, acts of righteousness. And here's where your unrighteousness has collided with that. And where the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of men collide, this is a proper moment for redemption. And that intersection allows us to see and know something about God. Now, what I find interesting about the way Paul sets this up in this particular passage is I would have thought he would have started with the external witness. That is how you look out across the world and see everything that God has done in the stars and in the heavens. But the fact that he starts with the gospel is very compelling. And what it tells me is that God's primary interest is to be known through the framework of relationship. God desires primarily to be known through the framework of relationship. That is, he isn't interested in being interrogated, investigated, or interviewed, or put on some kind of witness stand. And why not? Well, the Bible has something to say about that as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. Listen carefully. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. By it, or but it, is God's power to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the understanding of the experts. Where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since God, in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God has been pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. Now, it doesn't mean that the gospel is somehow illogical or doesn't make sense. What it means is that in contrast or, or to what the world wants God to do, the gospel seems like foolishness. And that is the gospel will always seem like foolishness to those who demand God make himself knowable outside of the framework of relationship first. But God says, this is the principal place where I want you to know me in a disclosure of my righteousness 
as it intersects with your unrighteousness, therefore producing the need for redemption and repentance. And if you're not prepared to have that conversation, the best of how God desires to disclose himself, you'll always be blind to it. And that's why the gospel feels like or sounds like foolishness to those that are perishing. But yet it makes all the sense in the world to those that are not. Because it is within the framework of relationship that is God's primary means or way that he would like to make himself known to humanity. I'll say this, that God's foremost desire is to make himself known through the framework of relationship. And this is further underscored as we go later in this particular passage. Let's look at verses 18 through 20. Verses 18 through 20 say the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. One of the great genres of television entertainment that I enjoy is that of detective shows. You know the scene that I'm talking about where you come in and there's all this yellow tape all over the place and the detectives are very shrewd about not allowing anyone who doesn't belong there to come in and to tamper with or interrupt the scene. Even after all of the evidences have been collected, detectives are very certain about the chain of custody and the little envelopes and boxes that have all of the details of the case because they don't want anyone tampering with the evidence. But every once in a while, you know, on those shows where you got a, a dirty cop or a, a detective who wants to hide or change the outcome of the particular case, what do they do? They may suppress the truth by tampering with the evidence. In other words, by just taking one single solitary piece of evidence, they're able to change the interpretation of the whole case. And the Bible says that's exactly what we do when he makes himself obviously known within the fabric of creation and we suppress those details. God is screaming at us from heaven, look at all these obvious things around me. As a matter of fact, God has made his presence in the earth of things noble about him so obvious that in order to miss it, we would have to be willfully dishonest. Um, take a look at the rest of the verse. It says, for what can be known about God in verse 19, God has made it plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world. And it is in, made readily visible in the things that have been made so that we are all without excuse. So God, again, has made proofs and ideas and the notions of himself, certain characteristics of himself, namely his eternal power and divine nature so obvious that we would have to be dishonest to miss them. God isn't hiding from anyone. He isn't playing hide and go seek. He's actually playing show and tell, clearly disclosing throughout the creation evidence that there is something bigger than us. If you think about that, look at all of the nature, the very nature, the bedrock of all of our scientific pursuits and discovery, which God is not against. God is not against science. I want you to think about this. In the very uh, name of one of God's attributes, it's the omniscience of the omniscient one. God wants us to know him. He wants us to know things about him. And so in our scientific pursuits and discovery, right, all of, all of our scientific suit and, and pursuits and discovery fall into three major categories, right? We want to know the origins of things, where they came from, the order of things, how they work together, and the outcomes of things. How will it all wrap up? How will it all finish? How will it all play out? And so in our pursuit to know the origins of things, the order of things, and the outcomes of all things, our archaeology, our astronomy, our biology, right? All of those things, all of those great pursuits 
find their home in trying to find out those things. And we want to know them. And guess what? God does too. As a matter of fact, the great truths about who God is and the origins of our world and the order of things in this world and the outcomes of things in this world, God wants us to know them because he has made them obvious. But he wants our pursuit of these obvious truths to be done honestly and not with the suppression of the truth, not with an effort to remove him as the one who is maintaining the order. By his word, all things consist without removing him as the first, um, the, the, the first cause, the one who also gave all these things their origin. As a matter of fact, I'd say it like this finally, that God does not want us to turn off our intellect. He actually wants us to turn our intellect over, not turn it off, but to turn it over to him as a creator, that he might bless us with understanding the deep wonders of the universe. As a matter of fact, I believe that the Lord has filled our world with wonder, so that through the discovery, our hearts would be filled with worship. I'll say that again. God has actually filled our world with these great wonders so that in their pursuit, discovery, and explanation, our hearts might be filled with worship. Psalm 19 has something to say about that. We're all familiar with this particular passage. And if not, I can challenge you to read it. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And so the Lord has literally saturated the creation with not just clues, but road signs that clearly point to what is responsible, who is responsible for our origins and the order and also the great outcomes. And he's asking us to see those things without suppressing the truth, not trying to change the case, but to see the case that it clearly makes. God wants to be known first through the expository witness of his word and the declaration of the gospel, which declares our need for him in relationship. But then also secondarily, he wants us to be known through the external witness of the physical world and all the things that have been built. God also desires to be known through the internal witness. What is this internal witness? Look at verses 21 through 25. In 21 through 25, the scriptures read as follows. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore God gave them up to the lust of their own hearts to impurity and dishonoring their bodies amongst themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. In this passage, we see quite potently that mankind is going to worship something, either the creature or either the creator. We are people who are actually wired for worship. And that's one of the great internal witnesses. I believe it is, and I know it is, uh, over in uh, actually Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning with verse 11, the scriptures say this. He has made everything appropriate in its time. Speaking of God, he has also put eternity in their hearts. But man cannot discover the work that God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better than for them than to rejoice and to enjoy the good of life. It is also a gift of God. 
whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all of his efforts. God does not want man to unenjoy or to stop enjoying life. God isn't, God isn't against enjoyment of life or the exploration or the pursuit of life or life as we know it. But in that wants us to see him clearly. But the more important part of that passage there in Ecclesiastes says that he has placed eternity in our hearts. And you know what that means? Because God has placed eternity in our hearts, no matter how much of this life here and now we enjoy, we have an insatiable appetite for eternity. Do you remember Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well and how he told her that even though you get water from this well, you'll thirst again until you get the living water? And she was like, give me some of that so I don't have to come back here again. You see, all of us are drinking on a regular basis from water that will eventually leave us parched. Any water separate from the water that is supplied by Christ. In other words, the human heart has an insatiable appetite. Our intellect, our imagination, our memory, our, 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 our emotions, they have insatiable desires. That is, they cannot be satisfied exclusively and totally uh, by the things here. And that's why they have to be connected to or tie themselves to something that is eternal. And this is why God is constantly inviting us into eternal life because this life cannot fully satisfy. You see, another note about our insatiable hearts, our hearts are so insatiable that they will either drive us insane trying to find satisfaction or they will drive us into the arms of the Savior to find that satisfaction. It's one or the other. I mean, look at the DNA of addiction. Whether you're addicted or have been addicted or know someone who's addicted to a substance or maybe uh, an experience, or maybe you're one of these people that today finds themselves shopping or watching TV because of this quarantine, you're starting to pick up certain repetitive or addictive behaviors. Think about what you're doing. You're trying to satisfy a certain appetite. It masks itself behind boredom. But, but, but going back to this larger picture of addiction, I want you to see where this comes from. Note this. The DNA of addiction is with each subsequent experience, you're trying to replicate the level of pleasure or satisfaction found in the previous experience, whether that's pornography or whether that's a particular substance that was drank or smoked or however we encounter it. We are trying to replicate certain experiences. And because that sensory experience isn't the same with each use, what do we do? You increase the dose metaphorically, right? And so we will always be increasing the dose of the things that our hearts desire until we find their ultimate satisfaction in Christ. And that's why I say that the human heart is insatiable. It has an appetite for eternity that was given to us by God. And we are wired to worship something. So what are these things that we worship? You see, because we are wired for eternity, but we are wired for worship and we have an appetite for eternity, there are times in our lives where the things that we, we get a hold to, we're always on the hunt for something bigger, something better and something beyond, whether it's a, 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 a vacation experience or any type of life experience. We're always saying, man, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm single, love this life, but you don't want to get married because that's better. Man, I'm married, I want to have kids. Man, I'm well, married, let's, let's, let's get our best car. Let's get our best career. Let's get our best kids. Nothing wrong with any of those pursuits, but be very careful that we're not depending on those things to totally satisfy the heart in a way that only God can. You see, we are always, again, on the hunt for the bigger, the better, the best, and the most, and more. All of our hearts are in look, in looking for that, maybe not in the same ways. But as our hearts yearn for these things, again, they could literally drive us insane. The, these appetites are insatiable, and until they find satisfaction in Christ, we will always connect ourselves in little ways to little things 
and we don't even know that we're becoming worshipers of those things because it's it's that, that we're finding satisfaction in something that is shy of the creator and the one that deserves our true and absolute worship. And so we have the expository witness of the gospel. We have the external witness of creation. We have the internal witness of the fact that we are wired for worship and built for eternity. And we're trying to find satisfaction to those impulses here on the earth in a temporal world. And it's just simply not available. And then the fourth witness is this. Not exactly explicit in the scripture, but it's definitely implied. And I want to show you this. If you look back at verse 17... It says that when it comes to that expository witness of the gospel, it says that those who understand the gospel do it and see God's righteousness by living from faith to faith. Where does this faith come from? The supply of righteous faith must come from the Holy Spirit. We can't conjure it ourselves. If you look further in the scripture in verse 18, this natural inclination of humanity to suppress the truth of God, where does the impulse to no longer suppress truth about God, but to actually embrace truth and see him for who he really is. Where does it come from? It comes from the, the redemptive work of the Holy Spirit. When the scriptures tell us that, that, that mankind in verse 21, when they knew God, did not glorify him as God. In other words, they identified him, but they did not glorify him effectively. They didn't walk in worship in spirit and in truth. What is it that causes the human heart to move from just being able to identify that there is a God to then worshiping him in relationship? Well, I'll tell you what. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, the work of the Holy Spirit as defined by Jesus Christ in John chapter 14 is to come inside the life of the believer and to both convict and to comfort and to remind. But external to the believer, according to John chapter 16, verse 8, the Holy Spirit will also convict the world of its sin in righteousness and in judgment. The Holy Spirit has a dual role, both outside the life of the believer, convicting people and showing them and helping their eyes to see things the right way. But inside the believer, Romans chapter 8 also tells us that it confirms that we are the children of God. Romans chapter 8 verses 15 through 17 say something beautiful about the work of the Holy Spirit and how he helps us to know God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. The work of the Holy Spirit inside the believer is to regularly testify and to help us to know that we are God's children. He does that internal work. Outside of us, he's also bringing faith, removing blinders so that we see the truth for what it is, and also helping us to understand who God is in spirit and in truth. It is the eternal witness of the Holy Spirit that helps us to know God and to piece together all these things that God is showing us throughout time and history. So whether it is the expository witness of, of a good preached gospel or a well-read gospel, whether it is the external witness of the things that we see in the sky and around in the created world, whether it is the internal witness of recognizing that we have insatiable appetites that can only be satisfied by an eternal source, it is the eternal witness of the Holy Spirit that pulls it all together and causes us to know God in truth for who he fully and truly is. So is God knowable? I believe that there's a fourfold witness, at least in the scriptures, that says that he is absolutely knowable. But I want you to also hear this loud and clear. The primary means through which God wants to be known is within the framework of relationship, which is why this whole disclosure starts with the gospel. 
Gospel Hope, I um, thank you for tuning in and listening. I'll be uh, glad to answer any questions that we have during our Q&A time that will uh, immediately follow this. Um, praise God for just your attentiveness during this time. And I look forward to exploring the scriptures and further unpacking this great topic of theology proper with you. Praise God and amen.